You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. I'm here. Aaron's here. Uh, ben Standig uh, from The Athletics going to join us on the show today as well uh, to talk about the Jack Del Rio and Scott Turner uh, conference call uh, get-together uh, get togethers yesterday with the media, so we'll go through all of that. I just wanted to start real quickly. I want to talk some college basketball here for a little bit, but before we get to that, um, you know, the Hall of Fame yesterday, this is the centennial year of the National Football League. They're putting more people from the past into this year's Hall of Fame class. It's going to be a class of 20. 13 of those are former players from way back in the day and former contributors as well. Um, Drew Pearson, the longtime Cowboys receiver, didn't get into the Hall of Fame. He was very distraught over that. Um, you've probably seen some of the stories about that. Um, I feel badly for him, just like I felt badly for Joe Jacoby. Joe Jacoby is deserving of the Hall of Fame. Let me just say that. Uh, we've talked about that many times. I actually don't think that Drew Pearson is like you know one of these guys that has to be in the Hall of Fame personally. He's the last player from that all-decade team who isn't in it, though. Is that true? Yeah. From the 1970s all-decade team? What about Cliff it, Branch? It might be the last offensive player. Like there, I, I saw something that was like the last... It was either last offensive player or last player who wasn't in the Hall of Fame. Um, I want to look that up. That's very interesting to me because I, I did you know twenty minutes on on this on on the radio um, this morning, and you know Lynn Swan, Drew Pearson are the are the first team receivers. Harold Carmichael, Paul Warfield, second team receivers. You know, I'm sorry, but Cliff Branch should be, you know, um, included. Harold Jackson should be included, you know, in that in yeah, that the, 70s the, list. This is from New East you, Grugs and Rich Hill, the only eligible. All decade offensive or defenses first teamers to not be in the Hall of Fame from the seventies. It's Pearson eighties. Everyone's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, what about Jake? Isn't Jake the second or third? It's like a second or third team all tackle. You know, uh, all decade first left team. tackle first team. Oh, from for the first teamers. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Let me just see on the uh, in the eighties team the ta- the first team. See, this is. I'm sorry. Um, I didn't. I actually didn't know this, and I appreciate you bringing this up. Jacoby's a second-team All-Decade um, uh, recipient uh, for the '80s as a left tackle, along with Gary Zimmerman. The first-team tackles are Munoz and Covert. Covert got into the Hall of Fame yesterday. Jimbo Covert should not be in the Hall of Fame before Joe Jacoby. This is what I was going to. This was the purpose of starting this conversation or starting the show with this conversation. You know, Joe Jacoby. Um, played, first of all, many more years than Covert did. Um, but beyond that, you know, their careers sort of paralleled each other in the 80s. Um, Jacoby had three all-pro um, nomin- uh, three all- three all nods. Covert had two. Jacoby was in four Pro Bowls. Covert was in two. Um, you, you, the, Jacoby won three, uh, was a part of three Super Bowl winning teams. Covert won. Covert's team that won the Super Bowl was a defensive team, the 85 Bears. Jacoby played on a team that was highlighted by his and Russ Grimm and Jeff Bostick, et, et cetera, the Hogs play during those three Super Bowl wins. Covert basically spent half of his career, because he only had an eight year career, watching Joe Jacoby play in the goddamn Super Bowl. Okay, Jim Covert does Jimbo Covert does not deserve to be in the Hall of Fame before Joe Jacoby. That's number one. Number two is this: the Drew Pearson thing. Cliff Branch was a player in the '70s who's not in the Hall of Fame. 
on those great Raiders teams into the 80s, too. Um, Cliff Branch has better numbers than Drew Pearson. But beyond that, forget about the numbers here for a moment. If you watched and grew up with football in the 70s like I did, I was a child of the 70s, and that's when I, I fell in love with the NFL. Cliff Branch was a wide receiver that defenses had to game plan for. He was the best deep threat in the game. Okay, He was a guy that when you played the Raiders, whether Stabler was the quarterback or Plunkett was the quarterback or Mark Wilson was the quarterback, whoever the quarterback was, Cliff Branch, number 21, had to be game plan for. Drew Pearson was a really good player in the 70s. I didn't think he was in the Hall of Fame, and I do this all the time because I don't really have the, the Hall of Fame memorized. I don't. But, you know, if somebody brings up a player and says, is that player in the Hall of Fame? I would have said before yesterday, I don't think Drew Pearson's in the Hall of Fame. And I don't think Drew Pearson is a Hall of Famer. That's my, that was my first reaction. Went back, looked at the numbers. Really good player in the 70s. Good receivers in the 70s. Branch isn't in the, isn't in the Hall of Fame. And then a guy from the 70s got in yesterday as part of this you know centennial group going in. Harold Carmichael got into the Hall of Fame. Carmichael, a six foot eight receiver for the Eagles. I mean, Pat Fisher owned him for much of his career. I didn't think of Harold Carmichael as a Hall of Famer before yesterday, and I really don't think that Harold Carmichael was a Hall of Fame kind of a player. Charlie Taylor, even though his career ended in 1975, 76, he's the best receiver of the 60s and 70s in terms of the guys that, the, uh, of that decade. Harold Jackson was exceptional. Swan and Stallworth, obviously very good. Bolitnikoff, I mean, come on. Best hands in the business in that decade. You know, you had guys like Gene Washington and and uh, and Ken Burrow, good receivers. John Gilliam, um, you know, uh, just in thinking through. I mean, Pearson played on Cowboy teams that were excellent, man. Tony Dorsett for half that decade. You know, Billy Joe Dupree, the, the other running backs, Dwayne Thomas, Calvin Hill, you know, Robert Newhouse, you know, great, great defenses, great coaching staff. Cliff Harris got in yesterday. I, I don't think of Cliff Harris as a, as a Hall of Famer. I, I don't know how they did this yesterday and not and, and overlook Joe Jacoby again. I, this is something that's hard to really determine for all of us, you know, do you compare numbers? Do you compare sort of the qualitative, what you remember watching them, um, you know, what their peers say, what coaches say? You know, it, it, it's a very subjective thing. I understand that. Um, my biggest gripe is Jacoby not in, Jimbo Covert in, because their two careers essentially paralleled each other, and Jacoby was a better player on a team that was much more offensive and relied very much on their offensive line, and, and Covert played on a team that was dominant defensively. The Redskins and the Bears played in the postseason three times in the 80s. The Bears came in here the year before they won the Super Bowl in 84 and beat the Redskins at RFK Stadium in the divisional round. They sacked Theismann like nine times in the game. Um, the famous story about that game, the, the Bears pass rush, the Bears defense in 84 was, I mean, you saw it coming. It was such a great defense, and then 85 it was all time. But it was great in 84, too. Um, but the famous story about that particular game is that Joe Gibbs, who was absolutely um, fearful of the shotgun because of the risk with the snap. I mean, think about this. You know, it's the 1980s, and you know everybody's moving to the shotgun, and Gibbs' quarterbacks were all uh, under center for every single snap. Well, they had apparently practiced the shotgun leading into that playoff game because the Bears' defense was so menacing. And it got out through a local reporter that the Redskins in practice <clears throat> were practicing the shotgun with Theismann, and Gibbs was irate and didn't run it in the game against the Bears. 
in nineteen in January of nineteen eighty. The playoff game actually, I think, was New Year's Eve nineteen eighty four. They lost. There was a big fake punt in that game. Walter Payton had a big game. Actually, threw a touchdown pass in that game. I believe that's the case. Um, I'm going to look up that the, this the uh, that particular box score. See if I have that right. I know there was a huge fake punt in the game. Um, the Redskins had won that division that year on the final week of the year against the Cardinals at RFK. They beat uh, Roy Green and um, uh, and um, Stump Mitchell, uh, that, that particular team, a Jim Hannafin team that was really good with St. Louis that year. Neil Lomax was the quarterback. They beat him 29-27. It was the game where Art Monk, I think, set the record for uh, season ca- uh, number of catches in a season. Uh, Monk set that record, I think, in that game, the season finale. And then they played the Bears. Okay, here it is, December 30th, all right, not New Year's Eve, almost one day off. Um, 23-19, to Bears won that game. And in that game, um, you had, yeah, Walter Payton threw a touchdown pass, threw a, uh, a halfback option touchdown pass to Pat Dunsmore. Um, and um, Steve Fuller was the quarterback in that game and, for the Bears. McMahon would be the quarterback the next year. Walter Payton rushed for 104 yards in that game. Uh, I'm not going to see the fake punt unless I go to the play-by-play, but I'm pretty sure they had a huge fake punt in the game. I could be wrong about that. Maybe I'm just remember the, remembering the Payton play. Um, let's see if they've got play-by-play of this game. They don't. Anyway, uh, I do remember that game for the most part. <laughs> not all of it. Um, Redskins were nine-point favorites in that game, and that was the beginning of the 85 Bears. The the 84 Bears, you saw it coming. You saw that how great they were, and 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 uh, Theismann wasn't sacked nine times. Here it is, seven times in the game. The Bears' defense had seven sacks in the game. Richard Dent had three of them. Hampton had two. McMichael had one. Um, they we, they were coming. My point is, is the Bears were known for their great defense and winning with defense. The Redskins, known for their running game and their offensive line. And the Redskins then went on, after that game, losing to the Bears, to beat the Bears twice in the postseason at Soldier Field. Uh, the 86 season featured the uh, Bears coming off the 85 years, the defending champs, a 14-2 and season, and the Redskins went in there and beat them in the divisional round, 27-13, to I think was the, the, the final score of that game. Uh, and then in Walter Payton's final game, which was the game that Daryl Green had the punt return the following year, went in there and beat those Bears 21-17. Um, to courtesy of the late third quarter Daryl Green, one of the most famous plays in franchise history, punt return at Soldier Field in what would turn out to be Walter Payton's final game. And there is the iconic shot of, you know, the frigid weather at Soldier Field, um, the Redskins, you know, having won the game and Walter Payton sitting on the bench, you know, head in hands, um, you know, devastated knowing that that was his final game as an NFL player, a loss at home to the Redskins. Jimbo Covert lost... Uh, his team's lost to the Redskins twice, beat them once. Redskins won three Super Bowls. Jacoby's accolades during that decade more than Covert, with the exception of this first-team all-decade designation with uh, with Jacoby's second-team all-decade uh, designation. Ridiculous. The other part of this, real quickly, is just the process of you know, of poor Drew Pearson. You know, told you might be in, you might not. You got to sit there and watch. It wasn't nearly as bad 
as what Jacoby had to do a few years ago. They flew him out for that Super Bowl in San Francisco, flew him out there, put him into a hotel, and told him, you'll hear a knock on the door, and you'll be told, you know, by God, the hand of God will touch you and say you're in the Hall of Fame. You've got to sit here. You've got to wait basically all day, all night, all day tomorrow, and just wait for somebody to come by and knock, and the knock never came. That's tormenting. I mean, what, the, what, what is that about? Stop, okay? Put it all on to this Saturday night during Super Bowl weekend. It's a great little, you know, hour program on Saturday night before the Super Bowl. And tell everybody, the, the, you know, every year there are 25 semifinalists. It gets narrowed down to 15 finalists. Tell everybody, no matter where you are, you don't have to be out here. We're, we don't, we're, we're not going to come by and knock on your door to give you the, the news. Just stay at home, watch the program, and find out if your name gets called. That's all. It's ridiculous. The whole process is is way too self-important. You know, this is a debate we get into all the time as NFL fans, and every single NFL fan base basically has their list, right? Has their list of players that should be in the Hall of Fame, and you're angry about it. And Cowboy fans, Drew Pearson, Cliff Harris, I'm sure there are a couple of others. Drew Pearson didn't get in. You know what? Maybe with that reaction now, he'll get in next year and with the senior committee. You know, Joe Jacoby's number one on my list. Uh, he is the player of Redskins past that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. He had a Hall of Fame career. To me, it's not even close. He should be in. All of the other players that we talk about, Brian Mitchell, Gary Clark, Larry Brown, Jerry Smith, are all Hall of Fame consideration worthy. You know, there's a debate to be had. There's a discussion to be had. But I don't consider them to be like, oh my God, it's been egregious over the years that these players aren't in the Hall of Fame. And I loved Brian Mitchell's career. He's still second all-time on the all-purpose list. I believe he is, to Jerry Rice. And the thing, and I mentioned this this morning, and I've mentioned mentioned it in the past, the great thing about Brian Mitchell's career is that every big game he played in, he was clutch. He played his best in the game's most meaningful moments. I think back to the playoff game at Minnesota the year after the Redskins won the Super Bowl, the 92 season, January of 93. Brian has a 45-yard run on a fake punt as the up guy. He ends up catching a touchdown pass, I believe, in that game, and then nearly pulls off, you know, uh, contributes to a stunning win the following week at Candlestick against the 49ers. He played really well. He had the kickoff return in the playoff game against Tampa in 2000 that gave the Redskins a 13-0 lead. That was as close as the Redskins have been to NFC Championship Sunday since 1991. They were really close. They had Tampa beat, I mean, pretty much in deep trouble, up 13-0 third quarter after Mitchell's you know 100-yard kickoff return. And they blew that lead, lost 14-13. Tampa went on to um, St. Louis the following week and lost to the greatest show on turf, the Rams. Um, remember, too, that Brian Mitchell in his career in Philadelphia in some of those playoff games had big returns. He was a clutch player. Do I consider Brian Mitchell to be a, a an absolute, um, you know, ridiculous, egregious, insulting miss with on the Hall of Fame? I don't. Um, I think he's certainly worth considering, like Gary, you know, like Gary Clark, like Larry Brown, who was the NFL MVP in 1972, like Jerry Smith. Uh, Joe Jacoby should be in the the Hall, the Hall of Fame. Certainly yesterday reminded the, the, uh, all of us of that. I don't think it's an anti-Redskin bias. I don't. 
Um, but I don't know what the deal is with Jake and why Jimbo Covert is in the Hall of Fame before Joe Jacoby is. Uh, anyway, that's enough on that. Um, real quickly, um, before we get to Ben Standing, I wanted to mention Georgetown because I watched a little bit of this game last night. They beat Creighton 83-80. to It's their second win over a ranked team this year. Um, Creighton was ranked 25th. Uh, Georgetown's 12-6, and 2-3 and three in the Big East. They are, for Joe Lenardi's latest bracketology, they are in the field. They're 12 seed playing in that first four uh, against Virginia, actually. That's, uh, that's Lunardi's latest bracketology. That would be kind of fun. Georgetown, Virginia in the first four on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. Um, but they have a player that I was watching last night. First of all, their guard, Mac McClung, he had, the, he had the flu last night. Apparently multiple players were sick and had the flu last night, um, but they won the game anyway. But the player that I wanted to talk about is that seven-footer, uh, Omer Yurtseven. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a game last night, went for 20 and 13 points, and I'm watching him like, wow, he is skilled offensively for a seven-footer. He can stretch you out to behind the three-point line and shoot shoot that uh, three-pointer. He's got a great jump shot. He's got good feel around the basket, both hands. So I did a little research on him. Do you know that he had a game in 2016 as an under-18 player in Turkey? He's from Turkey. It was a Turkish league under-18 game where he scored 91 points and grabbed 28 rebounds. True story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what the competition was like. Does it matter? He had 91. He had a Wilt Chamberlain game. 91 points, 28 rebounds is like a 17-year-old in an under-18 game in Turkey. Turkey produces some pretty good basketball players. 91 points, 28 rebounds. He was a five-star recruit, went to NC State, now is at Georgetown. He's good. He's averaging 16 and 10. I have no idea if he's a good defender. He is very Euro sort of-ish in terms of his versatility offensively, his ability to to stretch you with, with the jump shot. And I thought he looked good around the basket last night. I haven't watched a lot of Georgetown, but that kid was impressive. And I know they've got other impressive players. You know, Patrick right now essentially has only got six players that he plays. You know, after all of that mass exit in December, you know, mutual parting of the ways with various players, he's basically got six players. That number zero um, plays a little bit off the bench. Um, uh, His last name's Blair. I think it's Javon Blair. He plays real minutes. Anybody else that gets into the game gets in for like a couple of minutes just to spell somebody. It's actually a great position to be in if you're a coach where you don't have to worry about playing time for people that are complaining about playing time, to have like a, a, a limited bench. Now, you're in trouble if you get in foul trouble or somebody else gets injured or leaves. I like their team a little bit. It's not going to surprise me at all if they end up in the tournament, um, Georgetown, this year. Um, the other thing, Aaron, just about this college basketball season, three more top ten teams went down last night. Fourth-ranked Auburn lost for the first time. Um, they lost to Alabama on the road. Uh, that line stunk. Uh, I mean, stunk big time. Um, it was uh, Alabama plus one at home against the fourth-ranked team in the country uh, that was undefeated, one of two undefeated teams left. Alabama blew them out. Um, Butler and Kentucky lost two. They, they were both top ten teams. Butler lost to Seton Hall, who's ranked. The night before that, Duke lost to Clemson. Sunday, it was eighth-ranked Michigan State losing by 29 at Purdue. This season so far in college basketball has been, 
I don't. I, I can't remember a season in which, in the first month of the season, four number one teams lost. No, it's never happened. Evansville beat Kentucky. Stephen yes. F. Austin beat Duke. Michigan State and Louisville both lost as as top ranked mm-hmm. teams in the first month of the season. And just to tell you how hard it is to predict this season, Michigan State and Louisville were number one teams once. You know, a month, month and a half ago, and they're not even ranked in the top ten anymore. How about UNC being a top ten team and them being a legitimate bad team? North Carolina is in last place in the ACC. Last place. UCLA is in last place in the Pac-12. At one point in December, Ohio State was killing people, and they were number two in the country. And after they got to that level, after blowing out Villanova, blowing out Kentucky, they blew out North Carolina. We didn't know anything about North Carolina at the time. Didn't know how bad they were. After they got to number two in the country, they lost five of their next six games by an average of 11 points per game. I mean, who's good? I mean, there's only one unbeaten team left in the sport, San Diego State. They're good. I like them. They haven't lost. Um, how they've got that 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 point guard that's really good, Flynn mm-hmm. uh, Malachi Flynn is is good. I've wa- yes. I watched them one night late because I was involved uh, in the game. <laughs> um, they beat Creighton by 31 and Iowa by 10 in the non-con in the non-conference. They're in the Mountain West. Who the hell knows whether or not you know what we're seeing right now is real? You know they're a projected two seed right now. Gonzaga is really good. Here's the problem with Gonzaga and San Diego State. We say this every year. It's like after November and December, what do we really know about them? You know, because of the leagues they play in. I've mentioned, you know, what John Thompson told me many, many years ago about November and December college basketball. He said there's nothing more irrelevant in college sports than November and December college basketball. It takes at least two to three months for coaches to figure out what they have, to play the way they think they can play, to really figure everything out. And, and he's like, you're not going to know anything until you get into the middle of conference play and towards the end of you know January, February, and into March. So the, the big wins that Gonzaga and San Diego State had in November and December really don't mean much. They do on their resume for the tournament. But are we really learning anything about what they're going to be in March? I mean, Gonzaga's been a major player. But, you know, Virginia. Virginia was ranked fifth one month ago. And we know what they lost from their title team, you know, Ty Jerome, uh, Hunter, you know, Kyle Guy. Um, but they were ranked fifth a month ago, and now they've got three straight losses, and they're on the bubble for the tournament right now. Maryland, we had this conversation yesterday, ranked as high as third in December, right now on the verge of falling completely out of the top 25 if they don't beat Purdue on Saturday. You know, it, it was a devastating loss the other night. But Maryland's essentially having the same kind of season that all of the other perceived really good teams are having, up and down. One night you're like, whoa, I thought they were much better than that. And then the next night is, wow, they're really good. That's essentially where college basketball is. I do think, and I've watched Dayton a little bit with Obi Toppin. He's probably among the two or three best players in the country. Anthony Grant coaches Dayton. Remember when Grant was at VCU? He created VCU, you know, in, in, in the Final Four run they had. Um, and, um, well, Shaka Smart was the coach, right? Shaka Smart replaced Anthony Grant mm-hmm. and took that team to the Final Four. But Anthony Grant sort of started the ball rolling, and then he went to Alabama. And then he's at, then he's at a col- uh, college coaching, and he, he's an assistant uh, for Oklahoma City in the NBA. And now he's back at Dayton. And they're, they're a good team, and Obi Toppin is a really good player. 
Um, but I have no idea. I don't think anybody can figure this thing out right now. Who do you think is really good? Who do you think right now is an absolute lock for the Final Four? I mean, no one's a lock for the Final who Four. Do you I th- think, who I would think you Duke, strongly favor? Duke, I think, is the best team in the country right now, despite their losses. They have two of the weirdest losses of the year, but I think overall, Duke is the best team in the country. I thought so before the other night. Now, The other night's not going to change my mind that much, but you're right. They actually really looked good in their couple of games leading up to the other night. Yeah, I, I think that they are the most dynamic. I think they are the best team. And again, we're, we're basically two shots away from them being undefeated. Uh, I think I actually think Dayton is a very very good team. Yeah. Um, I think Kansas and Baylor are good, but again, they're both weird. They're both taking a little bit of weird losses. But to your point, yeah, there's not a team that I I probably won't be betting any futures for the NCAA tournament because the NCAA tournament I feel is going to be as wild as it ever is. I, I um you know as mentioned I I think Dayton and Toppin have a really good chance because he is a true great player. He's going to be a very high draft pick uh, in June in the NBA draft. I think they're a very interesting team to watch. I sort of agree with you on Duke. The whole Baylor thing every year, I just think Scott Drew somehow they'll you know blow it. Somebody, it, it, They're good, though. They went to Kansas the other night and won. Real quickly, Gonzaga is the number one team in the country right now. They play 15-3 and three Santa Clara in their conference tonight. Santa Clara, really good. 15-3, and three, not bad. You know, that's a pretty good, pretty damn good record. They're a 20-point underdog tonight to Gonzaga. That's the problem with that league, um, as we know. Um, All right, uh, quick word about mystamps.com. Let's face it, most New Year's resolutions are difficult to keep. I think I've already blown mine here on January 16th. You want to get more exercise, you want to eat well, you want to cut back on certain things, you want to save more money. Well, I've got a resolution that's very easy to keep, especially if you are a small business like ours. Stop wasting time going to the post office. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can do anything you do at the post office right from your computer. Plus, Stamps.com gives you something you can't even get at the post office. Big discounts, huge discounts on postage. It brings Stamps.com, does all of the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Whether you're a small business sending invoices and online seller shipping out products or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com handles it all with ease. Simply use your computer, print out official U.S. postage at any time you want for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail's ready, you just hand it to your, to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox It's that simple. Now, here are the savings. Five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. It's a no-brainer. You save time and money. Currently, over 700,000 small businesses across the country are using Stamps.com. Give yourself a resolution you can actually keep this year, especially if you are a small business. Stop going to the post office. Go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code, KevinDC, you'll get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitment or contract required. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Kevin DC. That's Stamps.com, promo code Kevin DC. Stamps.com, you never have to go to the post office again. All right, let's bring in Ben Standig uh, from The Athletic um, to talk about a lot of things. Ben was... Uh, a participant in the conference calls yesterday with Jack Del Rio and Scott Turner, the two new coordinators for the Redskins. We will get to that momentarily. Um, 
Aaron and I, 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 I opened up the show with a lot of college hoops and G- Georgetown in particular. Um, you know, I, I like that big dude. Um, uh, I think he's got some skill, man. I think he's really highly skilled. And they've got this short bench. I, and I, I know you follow college basketball a lot. I haven't watched a lot of Georgetown, but, you know, they're right now in Lunardi's latest bracketology is a 12 seed. Do you think that they get through the Big East schedule with a resume at the end of it that, that says they're a tournament team or not? I mean, I think, it, it, you know, it, I think it's all going to come down to at this point, can they, the seven guys, they have to stay healthy. And, like, that almost seems like it's almost not even, it hasn't been possible so far. The first couple games of the uh, of Big East play, Mac McClung, either their top scorer missed a game with an injury. Yesterday they beat Creighton, top 25 team, but in doing so they did it with McClung and, and their other guard, Terrell Allen, Dealing with the flu, like Allen, like basically, like almost like passed out or something at the end of the game as their Georgetown solves the game away. So they literally are a hangnail away from never for having negative depth. So that's their only problem. But from like a pure resume standpoint, like after all the chaos went on where, where people were leaving the program, they ripped off big wins Oklahoma State, uh, SMU, Syracuse, what have you. And doing that put them in the position where as long as they go, you know, in a general sense, they go 500 in the Big East. I think they get in, but the Big East is freaking loaded this year. I mean, I don't even know who the worst team in the conference is. So between the fact that the conference is is, is deep and they literally they're only playing seven guys, and when I say seven, I mean that that that's not even you know they basically have like one forward, you know one of the, the two of the seven are centers that really can't play together. So like it's kind of limited, but they do you know they've done enough. That I think they could get in. They just have to. They can't afford any more issues. You know, it's really funny. Like if you talk to coaches, um, they'll tell you, God, you know, sometimes I wish I just had seven guys. You know that I that I played. I had two solid guys off the bench. College basketball, forty minute game. You know, five under four. You know, every four minutes you clock stopping for you know a two minute commercial break. Um, you know, you it's if, if you stay healthy and you stay out of foul trouble, it's actually a lot easier um, than having ten guys that you play. I mean, we saw that with Maryland early in the in the year when the Twins were there. Like he had a different starting lineup every night. He was he he had more of a challenge in getting guys that he promised playing time in the game than dealing with the opponent. And so I, I actually, in some ways, I, I bet you a lot of coaches envy Patrick's situation right now. Now you don't want six. And they only really play Blair for significant minutes off the bench. You'd love to have seven or you know two or three off the bench that you can rely on. Um, but I every time I watch them and I watched last night, I'm impressed with um, with them. I think they're well coached. I think he's doing a really good job. Um, I think they play smart most of the time. You're right about the Big East, man. It is. I mean, DePaul. Remember early in in November, December, they were undefeated. You know, they they had a couple of decent wins. They won a couple of games over Big Ten teams, if I recall. I think they beat Iowa among uh, others. They haven't even won in the Big East yet. They're in, they're in dead last in the Big East. It's a good league, top to bottom. It's going to be tough, but it, you know, if they get to five hundred, what do they play? Eighteen, <clears throat> eighteen in conference. I think that's right, yeah. If they get to 500 yeah. with, you know, and I know Oklahoma State doesn't look as good, um, you know, Texas, Oklahoma State, SMU, Syracuse, am I forgetting anybody? They got blown out uh, by Penn State, I remember that. And they nearly yeah, I mean, beat, they nearly beat Duke. I mean, they had a chance to beat Duke. 
Yeah, I mean, effectively, they had no bad losses. The three losses were to teams that were in Ken Palm top 100, including Duke. Uh, you know, they opened Big East play with a loss at Providence, which we'll see what that looks like. But, you know, on the road in the conference play and no McClung, if you, you know, look at the specifics, people will give them a pass. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable, uh, what, what they've been able to do. You mentioned Yurt Saban, the, the, the big man in the middle. I mean, he's incredibly polished. I mean, at, at worst case for him, he'll play 10, 15 years in Europe and, and kill it when he's, uh, done with college, but he's got a shot at the NBA and, uh, yeah, they they have some pieces, but like I said, they are just. It's one thing to only go like six or seven. It's another thing to literally when you have to go to eight and you're going to a walk on, and that's basically where they're at. Yeah. So it'll be a challenge, but uh, you know, so, so far so good. I but my, my biggest take was up until this up until the moment where these kids all you know left the program for whatever the reason. I, I don't think any of us could say definitively whether Patrick Ewing was a good coach. I don't mean recruiter. I mean like an actual tactician. He's had to now put that he's had to showcase that side of his game and you have to give him credit they've done a good job i mean you know they, they you know kept them focused and uh you know these are things that are you, you, there's no other choice the, the, all you can do is almost strategize the game when you're this short-handed and he's done a good job yeah um you're seven the seven footer if you haven't seen him uh p- people out there watch him he's going he's going to be drafted and I mean, it may be a second round pick. That guy, I, I, I've not looked at a mock draft in a couple of weeks. I've watched him maybe twice this year. He is too skilled for a seven footer not to get a look. He's gonna. He, I would be shocked if that dude, unless there's something wrong with him, isn't picked in the NBA draft in June. You know, it's just a matter of he's like you know more of a traditional old school you know interior center. The game has sort of gone away from that. He's not much of a shot blocker. And, and I don't really know if he can defend, you know, players on the perimeter that well. But, you know, so it's things like that that could potentially limit him. It's more of the evolution of the game than it is the guy. But, uh, yeah, no, he's, he's, is he he's mo- incredibly skilled. Where is, he in the mo- where is he in the mocks? I mean, you do mocks for a living. Is he being mocked <laughs> as a first-rounder or second-rounder? I haven't looked at any recently. I honestly haven't been looking at the NBA one. I mean, uh um, I'll, I figure I'll spend a lot of time when we get to the Wizards <laughs> down the line. But, uh, but I mean, I, I don't think I uh, I was viewing him being picked, at least in the first at all. You know, if it's a second, I guess anything is possible. But, uh, you know, like I said, I think it's just a matter of, you know, did, does the team view him uh, as a viable player, you know, when you're doing pick and rolls, he's got to guard guys up on the perimeter, and he's not a major shop, not not much of a rim protector. But like I said, he's definitely very skilled offensively, and certainly, you know, from what I've heard, teams would would, would want to take a look at him for sure. At Ben Standig on Twitter, he writes for the Athletics. Subscribe like I did to the Athletics, so you can read Ben. Um, he's always all over uh, the Redskins. He's doing a phenomenal job covering um, them. Um, we'll get to them in a moment, but just sticking with college hoops for one more minute. Aaron and I had the conversation about how up and down this season's been. Like you've had, you know, last night three more top 10 teams lost. Duke lost the night before. Michigan State went to Purdue and lost by 30, 29 to be exact. Um, It's just a crazy year. And, you know, we've had conversations here recently about Maryland and the loss they had the other night at Wisconsin, which is not a bad loss. The way it happened was very frustrating. And, it, of course, the Maryland fan base, the passionate fan base starts to go nuts like they do, like everybody's got to be you know, fired. Um, and that's, that's a debate about Mark Turgeon, which, you know, we, 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 we could have briefly, we did it yesterday on the show, but, um, who's good. You follow this sport. I follow this sport. Aaron follows this sport. Who's really good. 
Like, I mean, we've seen so many of the top teams up and down, bad losses, great wins. Who do you think's really legitimate and, and, and has a chance to make a Final Four run? So, I mean, I'll be honest, like, because of the Redskins chaos. You're not watching uh, I, it as not, much? Not a ton, but I guess I would just say that my, my basic take, and I've, and I've talked to people you know, around the NBA and some other college people, in my lifetime, I think this is the worst year of college basketball that I can recall because from the standpoint of I, I can't point to any team that, that would that, that, that and I would say, well, that team looks fantastic. And there's not even – forget like a Zion Williamson-level interesting player. There's not even like a – is there even like a Trey Young type guy? Like I, I don't even know what I'm watching. So, you know, you're watching the schools. Duke's on. I get what that means. Maryland, obviously, and so on. But, like, it's a bizarre year. I don't really know – I don't really know what this means, and to, to that end, you could. I mean, I'm not that big on parity in sports. I, I like. I'm not saying I need the dominant team to win all the time, but I like the dominant team to exist, so you know what you're aiming at. But this is a year where, in college basketball, all kinds of teams I think could make a real run. If you have, you know, we always talk about having, you know, so upperclassmen in the backcourt and that type of thing. But you know, in college basketball these days, <laughs> whatever you have, if you have enough pieces to make it work, I mean, like if you told me Georgetown made a deep run. That, which is borderline insane because I just said they only have seven guys and you know they haven't been anywhere close to, to they haven't made the NCAA tournament in a few years, but that wouldn't that wouldn't stun me either. You, I, I, this is just a, a, an, an incredibly bizarre year. I'm sure Duke will be in the mix when we get to the end, Gonzaga and so on. But this is not a year where I'm looking at it going, wow, amazing dominant teams. If we did a bracket today, I don't know if I'd have anything uh, one seed in there. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, last year was actually a standout year for college basketball because of Zion Williamson and the excitement over him and Duke and you know, it manifested itself into a great tournament. I mean, we had great memorable games. Duke lost in the Elite in the Elite 8 right here to Michigan State in a great basketball game. And then you had, you know, Purdue Virginia in the Elite 8. You had the, you know, Virginia um the, the final four games were incredible last year including the National Championship game which went to overtime and Virginia beating, you know, Texas Tech which nobody had. I I I think it's going to come down to what it always comes down to in a year like this. And you may be right. It may be the worst year in a long time. I think it's getting compared a little bit to last year. But it'll just come down to, to, to matchups. And somebody, to one to two teams, you know, South Carolina from a couple of years ago, Texas Tech from last year, even though we knew Texas Tech was really good last year. But it's going to come down to, you know, uh, two to three teams you're not expecting. The Final Four last year, let's see if we can remember it. Auburn and Texas Tech were both in the Final Four with Virginia. And no one was really expecting Auburn to be there, obviously. And then Michigan State was the other team, right? Because Michigan State beat Duke in the Elite Eight. Um, and then Michigan State. Remember that. Well, Texas Tech, you know, handled Michigan State easily in the Final Four, and Virginia won a really tight game um, against uh, Auburn in the Final Four. I think that's what it was. I mean, we're, we're getting to the point where we can't remember things that happened like uh, an hour ago. I think that's what happened last year. I do remember the Virginia-Purdue game, the Carson Edwards game. That was the game of the tournament last year, right? I think it was. I, no, no, you're, <laughs> you're right. And I was at, I was at the, the Duke-Michigan uh, uh, Michigan State game. Yeah, I was sitting courtside and, and, and there, and, and you know, it was a, you know, it's a rare time. I think I was actually rooting for Duke to win because I just wanted to see Zion keep playing, and uh, especially now that he hasn't played since. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, look, I mean, I don't want to be like the old the old man saying college basketball was better back in my day, but <laughs> the reality is, I think it was. There's all kinds of reasons why college basketball for me is sort of faded among them. The whole one and done situation is just you know, the, you know, I'm sure you guys have talked about this. The, there's no connected story storylines from year to year anymore. Where I, I don't even know who who, who players are. The play just in general seems like it's down, but this is just a particularly bizarre year where you don't even have teams at the top who you know you could definitively say you feel good about. I mean, hell, look, this is a year where Rutgers is good. <laughs> I mean, what else can I say? I mean, Rutgers and DePaul aren't bad. That is nuts. That 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 never happens. And yet, you know, hell, Rutgers. I mean, I, I think I saw they're trending that they make the tournament right now. Oh, they're, 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 they are. They're a good team. They're 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 in second in the Big Ten right now. Right, so I mean that 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 right there says just how crazy this whole situation is. But uh, you know, and I think there is a difference between if you get to March and we're talking about games that go to the buzzer. That's not the same. I mean, that's exciting, but that's not the same as good. So right now we're at the point of it. You know, we'll see. I'm not trying to uh, get, you know uh, you know we want people to you know give a crap about college basketball because you guys talk about it. It's important, but I'm just saying it's just. I don't know. Right, right now for me, it's sort of a, a you know college basketball is a weird spot right now. Yeah, weird spot. It'll, it'll per usual. We'll get to March, and everybody will get their brackets, and they'll get excited about it. Last year, really, in terms of the last you know ten years, was was the exception where people were into it. You know, uh, before the tournament started, and that was really because it had you know a perceived superstar player in Zion Williamson. All right, um, talking to Ben Standing from the from the Athletic. Uh, what stood out from the two conference calls yesterday with the Redskins coordinators? Well, I, I think the one thing. So yeah, we, we started with, with Scott Turner, and then we got to Del Rio, and um, you know, first of all, when you know to, to start with with Ron Rivera compared to Jay Gruden, it feels like it's a very. I'm not talking about uh, translating into wins, but tonally, it feels very different. Rivera's got this. Military background. He's a former player, defensive-minded guy. He's you can just tell by the way he talks. Things are more regimented and tougher. And then you tack on Jack Del Rio. He, he answered his questions. You know, look, these were they didn't spill state secrets. I don't know if they said anything that was particularly enlightening. But the way he spoke, he spoke with a level of intensity where I was almost waiting for him to tell me to do push-ups if he didn't like my question. Uh, he was very. Uh, he was very on his game, no nonsense, and you can tell like that's how it's going to be um, for this team. I think, but, you know, especially on that side of the ball, I, I think any you know the idea of a club J situation. I think we're, we're that's over, um, as, as we've you know heard throughout the last few years in terms of training camp and practices and things like that. So I think that from that perspective, that that was my biggest um, takeaway. You know, beyond that, I mean, look, I think they're all in the process of trying to figure out. What the heck they have, uh, you know, both in terms of, um, the, you know, the, the building, trying to understand, the, the, you know, that place, but also the, you know, the, the guys on, on the roster. Obviously, I think it's a little easier for Del Rio, knowing you've got that defensive line, you got Montez, Atlanta, and Collins. He's got more things to work with. Scott Turner, obviously, the big thing is, is Dwayne Haskins. You know, he said all the right things um, about him so far. Uh, you know, in terms of trying to figure out, uh, you know, in, in terms of, you know, a, a guy who, you know, they said Carolina scouted Dwayne Haskins last year. They viewed him as a first round pick. They ended up taking a quarterback in the third round. So I don't know. Maybe they would have been, maybe they, maybe they would have taken Haskins at 16. I doubt it. But uh, Redskins got him one pick before. So, you know, I, I think by and large, 
I'm not trying to make any big sweeping takeaways out of this, these initial kind of conversations. Uh, but like I said, the biggest thing for me was Del Rio is uh, is no joke. He's uh, intense, and you know I think that's you know I think that's a good thing for this team. They need if there's any one thing like I wasn't necessarily thrilled with the Bill Callahan era per se, but the one takeaway from it, even some of the players I think agreed, was that they needed more discipline. They needed more um, intensity, and I think these guys will definitely supply that. I mean, let's not forget Greg Minuski told us when he was named defensive coordinator that he was going to build a defense that cracked skulls and struck iron. You know, he's like, we're cracking skulls going downhill and we're going to strike iron. I mean, all of this right now on January 15th, January 16th means nothing. Del Rio's got a resume. I still view – it's funny how Del Rio's sort of – with respect to the fan base and you know my interaction with different fans, your interaction with different fans, people are so excited about Jack Del Rio. It's Ron Rivera who I'm excited about. Ron Rivera is a defensive-minded head coach. It's going to be the defense is going to be reflected in what he wants, you know. Um, and and he would he picked Del Rio in part because he knew Del Rio would agree with his vision. He wasn't looking for a new defensive vision, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, I always think people get too worked up over assistance. I mean, this is even the thing, like when you make the comment about whatever Minuski said or didn't say, he isn't the overall tone setter. It's up to the head coach to to, to do that. And, you know, especially if it's the, the head coach is on the same side of the ball, in this case with Rivera and Del Rio, you know, no matter what, you know, Rivera's talking a lot about uh, we're going to have a, um, you know, collaboration and all that. Okay, but yeah, it's only collaboration to a point. At the end of the day, he's not going to let everything veer off into ways he doesn't want it to go. He obviously picked, um, you know, he, 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 the idea of having another head coach on the roster, I believe, is appealing to him and a former head coach. And, and Del Rio's had two turns there, so that's part of it beyond the defense. But, um, yeah, obviously he, he's known Del Rio a long time. I'm sure he respects his work. But, yeah, at the end of the day, Rivera is the one who is going to lead lead these guys and, and, and sort of determine how things, how things head. Input, sure, but, yeah, it's, it's all about Rivera uh, for the most part with that question. Um, I'll, I'll turn to Scott Turner's um, answers here in a moment, but uh, sticking with Del Rio here for a moment, there are a couple of things that were interesting to me. One, you know, he talked about, hey, we're all, you know, we declared, we already declared that we're going to be a 4-3. For us, for us, it's about having our defensive linemen be penetrative and disruptive. Having a guy like Von Miller or a guy like Khalil Mack, who are premier pass rushers, they put a lot of pressure on the offense and help the defense. Um, and then he said um, specifically about Chase Young, you know, he talked about how, you know, it's too premature to start talking about players. You know, we've got, we've got to learn our own players first. We've got to look at free agency, et cetera. Um, having Von Miller and Khalil Mack can make you look really good as a defensive coordinator. Do you think that he, you know, was sort of indicating there, I don't think he was talking about Montez Sweat. He could have been, and maybe he'll view him that way. But um, if, if Chase Young is there at number two, you're going to mock it out here soon enough. But my sense of it is that the Redskins are probably going to take a player that will be evaluated at a level that we haven't seen pass uh, pass rusher evaluated at in a long time. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, it would seem if if, if the Chase Young hype remains where it is, where I heard Todd McShay, you know, say as good as the Bosa brothers are, better. Chase Young said better. Races better. Yeah, I mean, so that that right there 
says says a lot. So yeah, it's hard to fathom how they wouldn't take this guy. And you know, putting you know, ignore Ryan Kerrigan's situation for a minute because you know Ryan Kerrigan, one way or the other, probably won't be here beyond one more year. So you can take Chase Young and and you know move into the four three. Chase Young is more of a four three guy, and so on. Um, my only thing on all this is, no matter what we all think, we have no idea what Ron Rivera really wants to do. For all we know, he's the kind of guy that wants 15 picks in every draft uh, because he thinks that's the best way to build a team. Or he decides, um, <clears throat> you know, you know that that it is Chase Young and, and he wants to be aggressive um, in, in, in other in other ways. Or, or maybe, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe they look at it and decide, you know what? In, in 2020, a guy like Isaiah Simmons, the sort of hybrid linebacker from Clemson, that's an element that will give us a unique uh, a unique element defensively. I'm not saying any of that's going to happen. I'm just saying. Plus, we also don't know, you know, if if Tua is healthy and he sounds like he'll be ready to start showing off his wares sometime in March at least ahead of the draft. You know, if some team decides, hey, I need this guy, and if the, if they think they have to get all the way ahead of even the Lions at three, I don't know if that's true, but do and somebody comes to you with a Godfather offer. You have to consider it. So, you know, I think by all accounts, Chase Young is the obvious call. And, and you know, you can, you know, probably almost feel comfortable go buying your Chase Young Redskins jersey. But I'm just saying we have, you know, this is a new coach. He's in a new position. Kyle Smith is now, you know, running the front office at this point from a personnel standpoint. So, I, you know, I'm not going to presume anything. They're claiming they're not presuming anything. So I, I think for right now I, I, keep, I, I consider everything, but Chase Young is the overwhelming likely scenario for sure. One other thing on, on Del Rio's answers yesterday. I've loved, you know, every time I've heard from him, including the sit-down with Larry for Redskin Nation, and then yesterday, 98, 99% of it I've loved. But there's one part of it, and you were listening to it, so you know what the tone was. I, I only read it. Um, that just made me think for a moment, you know what, don't talk about the past. He referred to um, the lack of communication defensively on last year's team, and he said, quote, um, all you have to do is watch the tape. When you're watching the tape, there are countless examples of right before the snap where players are not in a good position. Knees bent, focus on the offense. They're kind of turned to each other, looking around like, what are we doing or questioning? You can see them asking each other what's going on, the communication, the urgency in getting to the line, the urgency in getting calls and communicating to each other. There was an issue there. Now, where it came from, it doesn't really matter, like blaming who is it. You want to blame players, you want to blame coaches. That doesn't matter to me. For me, it's about what we're going, what we're going to be, um, what we're going to set our minds on being, how we're going to approach it. Um, now, so I, I like a lot of his answers. I, I he also re- referenced um, about the potential of the defense, and he said, "Well, obviously, it can be better." They were thirty-second and third-down defense, thirty-second yards allowed, thirty-second things in towards the bottom of the league, and a lot of things. Actually, they were not thirty-second yards allowed; they were nineteenth in the NFL in yards allowed. I mean, that's a bogus, you know, statistical um, measurement, anyway, in my view. Third-down defense, dead last in the league, one of the worst third-down defenses we've seen in recent years. Uh, here, here's my point. You start talking about and start implying that the coaching wasn't very good last year. The first time we see Landon Collins waving his arms around and being confused in a game, you know, in Week Five against uh, against the 49ers and they get lit up. You know, you come back to these kinds of things. I guess you were on the call. Did you sense that it was a direct shot at the the staff last year? So it's interesting. Obviously, you know this is our first our first interaction with him, and vice versa. 
And there was a couple direct questions where he's asked about what do you think about Chase Young and some other specific things, and he flat out said, look, I'm not going to tell you guys squat. I'm not going to get, you know, it's too early in the process anyway, but don't expect me to be the guy spilling secrets on, on what I think and all that. But there were a couple times when you asked one a question, including this one, where he was asked about the communication, where clearly <laughs> he was triggered to give a, a, a more detailed answer. So this was something that obviously he's been, you know, whatever tape he's been watching, whatever his thoughts are, he was an ESPN analyst last year, so he was, you know, at least paying attention to the league. So I don't know how much he was watching the Redskins per se, but I, you know, I'm sure somewhat uh, that that he clearly thought it was 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 an issue. So I thought that was interesting just from that perspective, that that was something that triggered him, where other things he was more cautious as I guess, you know, pass, not going to not gonna go there. So, you know, it stood out to him. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I suspect for him, you know, look, he hasn't been, he's been out of the coaching for two years. I'm sure he, he is all ready to go, and he's got to wait a while. So the opportunity to you know, have a conversation, I, I suspect just, you know, with, with us, was probably something that got his juices going, at least on a couple of different topics, this being one of them. So I'm sure he's excited to get, you know, to get back out there at some point with these new players and try to figure out what to do. And, you know, I'm sure all these guys think, hey, I have all the solutions, obviously, right? So, you know, I, 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 I get it. And look, in, in this case, I don't think it's wrong. But regardless of whatever happens in the future, we obviously saw so many issues uh, uh, with this defense you know, the, the last couple of years and communication being one of them. So it's not like he was saying something that we we're all like, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, it was, yeah, what, he said, what, he, what he was saying, we're all, of course, nodding our heads saying, yeah, of course, it was terrible. And the communication, I mean, how many times on a Monday did we say, oh, my God, did you see before that play? They were completely confused. And I was told during the season and talked about it a little bit on the radio show and podcast that, you know, Minuski's system was too complex. There were too many calls. It was confusing to everybody. And there was a request. Quest, you know, at times for it to be much more simplified, um, and when they were a little bit more simplified, they they were more effective. And these are the things I'm sure Del Rio's mentioning. I just my preference would be, you know, when asked about last year's team, just say, you know, we're looking at tape, we're looking at players. Um, Got to get better. wasn't very good last year, but you know, there's no, you know, there, there there's no get. It's not a given that we're going to be any better next year. We got to work at it. You know, here's what happens to even the best of people when they come into Ashburn, when they come into Redskins Park. There's this sense in the past of, oh my God, we got to start, you know, promising big here. We we got to sell tickets. We got to market this team. We had a terrible year last year and the year before and the year before that. And you know, we're we, let's start, start talking about our top five defense. People get wrapped up in this thing. I don't even know how it happens. Like it's the culture of, you know, as I've always called it, over promising and under delivering. And God, I just hope that re- these people don't get caught up in it. And I don't think they will. They're professionals. They've been in real places. They've won. Um, I just, I, I that was the only thing from either press conference that I was just like, you know, I just wish he wouldn't, you know, sort of throw the previous coaching staff under the bus until he's done done something here. That's all. Yeah, and and I would say that in terms of Rivera, like he comes across as very practical. That obviously, you know, look, there's things that need to be, uh, you know, fixed. The, the Redskins have needed a new coach for a reason, but he also got hit, you know, hit himself. He goes let go. For, for, for a reason, and I don't. I, I I think he's excited to go to the next place, and to you know, like you know, what you see like an Andy Reid, you know, he went from Philly to Kansas City, and you know, you learn from these experiences. Belichick is obviously the, the you know the best example ever. Of, you know, I don't think he failed in Cleveland, but it didn't work out. 
and then he goes through the plays, and obviously it's fantastic, which isn't to say, you know, Rivera's the next Belichick or, or even Andy Reid. It's just to say, I think, you know, you get the opportunity to learn from your mistakes. He doesn't have – he gets to uh, uh, put his new – whatever lessons he learned into play quickly, and he does seem, like I said, to be more practical, uh, even keeled to some degree. So, you know, I, I think he, he seems – and again, that's the tone setter. He seems to set a reasonable take on that front, and, you know, I think he's really going to try to – to build the situation up, I, you know, I, I think he understands. Like, I'm not knocking Jay, but I think that you know one of the criticisms of Jay was, you know, the, the, the practices, you know, the, the little things. Did they focus on that stuff? I think Rivera, like, you know, you always heard about like John Wooden, like where he would teach the guys how to tie their shoelaces, uh, to sort of like a to, to sort of take them all the way back to the basic fundamentals. I don't know if Rivera is going to that extreme, but that's more of the guy I would imagine who's taking these guys all the way back to the bit to the true basics. And build them up, and uh, you know, because I think he needs them to understand we're going to do things a certain way, and you know, you guys aren't all that, but we're going to figure this out together, and we'll do it one step at a time. I mean, that's my gut too. I mean, I I, I definitely am optimistic right now, much more so than I've been in recent years. We're talking to Ben Standig. Let's talk about Scott Turner. First of all, you know, it's interesting to me in listening to him talk about growing up here with his father as the head coach here for seven years, and he was 11 years old when Norv got the job here, 17, you know, and, and a senior in high school when Norv got fired. So this was really much of his formative years, you know, as, as a human being were spent here, and his memories actually are fond um, of, of this area, and he's excited to come back, and he's got friends here. Um, what did we learn, A, about the kind of offense uh, Scott Turner is going to, you know, design and then call, and then B, uh, what they think of Dwayne Haskins, what he thinks of Dwayne Haskins? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think he, he talked about, I don't think he really, like, you know, the, the, the learning from his dad you know, who learned from the sort of the Air Coriel system going all the way back until such an ancient term. When I when I've heard that in recent days, I was like, wait, what Air Coriel? <laughs> what about Joe Gibbs here? What's going on? Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think he's trying to emphasize less system, more focus on what do I have and how do I make that work? Um, we'll see if that ultimately holds. That's always been a big bugaboo to me when you have people like Spurrier, um, you know, come in and they have my precious system and then you don't, you know, you, you, you build – you, you don't build to the players. You make the players fit the system, and I don't often think that's a problem. So, you know, I, I think he's trying to figure that out. I mean, I think realistically, while obviously, you know, the, the, you know Carolina played the Redskins last year, so they had some sense, um, uh, you know, just from that experience of what this is about. But they really are trying to, I think, understand what do they have. And offensively, look, there are so many moving pieces. I don't really even think Scott Turner can tell you anything. I mean, if we, if we realistically sit here right now and say, what do the Redskins have on offense? You have Terry McLaurin, uh, and then, like, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, technically you have Adrian Peterson, but who knows how that's going to play out. Darius Geis, no idea what to make of a guy who's been on IR three times in two years. Both of your guards are in free agency. We don't know if Trent Williams will, will be back. Uh, you know, negative at tight end last year. They've got to address that spot. So I don't even know if Scott Turner can, can say definitively what's going to happen, but he did at least seem to talk about Trying to build a system around the 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 player the players more than the other way around. So you know, I, and in terms of Haskins, yeah, I mean, he it's so funny. We spent so much time last year debating should the Redskins be using Dwayne Haskins more 
and the, the counter that Jay Gruden made himself was, well, he's not ready. He's not experienced. And people would, didn't like that. I personally thought that made reason, that made reasonable sense. He didn't look like he was ready to me. He'd only, you know, played, started one season in college, but people didn't want to hear that. Okay, fine. He eventually got in there. Scott Turner comes in and says, well, the biggest thing with Haskins is he's inexperienced and he needs to, uh, you know, you know, gain more. And you just, you know, you do that through reps and practice and things like that. So the new guy comes in, recognizes immediately that Dwayne Haskins is, um, you know, he's not fully formed, which I don't think anybody was suggesting, but you know, it's just funny that we, we spent so much time last year debating whether this kid should be thrown in there, which I said, no. And I think that was, I think it was what they did. I think was a reasonable way to go, especially once the season unfolded the way it did. So I think they, you know, I think that just the biggest question is, you know, what is Dwayne Haskins going to do? Is he going to, be the guy that's here every day during the offseason, working with these guys, putting in that time, the effort, be the leader, things like that. I think that's a part of this equation that goes, we can talk about the coaching all we want, but Dwayne Haskins has got to meet that head on and, and take a lot of the ownership on himself. You know, you and I have had the conversation while it was happening, um, after it was happening. You're stubborn. You're stubborn on this Haskins thing. <laughs> Um, and you know it because there would have been ab- – look, I- I'm not saying that it, it's not possible that, you know, in week three or week four or week five he really couldn't do it. You know, I, I would suggest that there's a possibility that he was much less prepared, you know, then um, versus, you know, the Buffalo game in week nine or ten, whatever that was for his first start. With that said, I don't think it would have damaged him. Um, you know, for you know, for career long, uh, for his career, had he started those games, and I think by the time you got to the back half of the schedule, you know, the Giant game, the Philadelphia game, where he really played well, may have been, you know, uh, may have been happening against the Jets and the Lions instead. You know, a few weeks earlier. I th- there's not, I don't know. I I, I think. Well, you're, you're- yeah, go ahead. Well, what's funny is earlier you said, I think it, it, it referencing that you and I are getting old, that we don't remember what happened yesterday. Yeah. I don't remember. I, I Now that you said it, I remember that you and I have had this conversation, yeah. but I wouldn't have come on your podcast and just said, like, all that, like, uh, I've had it with other people, but I, I can't remember who I had no, this you, conversation you and with. No, so. you and I had the conversation. It was either on the radio show yeah, I remember or on the podcast. I remember it now. And, I, and I said to yeah. you, and it was probably, you know, before the Miami game, or, you know, I'm like, come on. I mean, they're 0 and 4, 0 and 5. This is ridiculous. This dude, see, the one thing, and th- this is the way I felt, my gut feeling going back to training camp is if I had seen a guy that looked completely overwhelmed and thought that, you know, he had a psyche that was fragile, I would have been with you. But I saw a guy even in the preseason that had a lot of. A lot of confidence. Maybe it wasn't earned or deserved, but he's one of those dudes, and we've all known them. If we've, you know, for if you've participated in sports at any level, you know the guy that walks into the gym or walks out onto the field and thinks he's the best player, even if he isn't. And because of that, that level of confidence, you're never really going to, you know, you're never going to really rattle that guy. So I just felt, you know, with him and his personality, or at least me projecting what his personality was. 
that they were going to be okay playing him, even if he didn't know the whole playbook. And if you recall part of my argument at the time, and you probably don't recall, part of my argument at the time was come up with a playbook that works for him. Coach to his level right now, but get him the hell out there so we can see what he has. And, you know, remember this debate, you know, could have, if Callahan hadn't been named head coach, or if Case Keenum had hung in there and they had beaten, you know, Minnesota or San Francisco, or, you know, they had won another game along the way, you know, maybe if Case Keenum doesn't even get that concussion in the Minnesota game, it may not have been for another three or four weeks that we would have seen him. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, obviously there were so many variables, including Gruden fighting for his life, and, and you know, realistically, and, and, you know, even up until the very end, you know, Case Keenum gave you a better chance to win that game than, than, than Haskins, the rookie, which is a separate issue than whether Haskins... I don't even think that's true after watching both of them. I, don't think, I think once we got to Haskins' you know, third start, fourth start, that he actually gave him the best chance to win. Well, that's fair. I mean, by, yeah, by the end, I mean, Haskins' last two starts, he definitely looked significantly better than he did early on. I, I, you know, I think... I mean, again, we, I'm, sure we, I'm sure we talked about this before. <laughs> but, uh, okay. but, but the um, but, but part, part of the... Part of the situation, like in the debate of whether Dwayne Haskins was getting first team reps and, and why, and if he's not, why isn't he? Uh, you know, in talking to people in the building, like the sense I had on some level was look, he can get good work playing on the scout team. He has to put in the work. And I think there was a sense he just wasn't maybe focused enough. Right. And when, when, when Gruden threw him into that Giants game and everybody was kind of like, what is happening here? This is crazy. Why would you just throw this kid in? I, you know, whether Jay did it intentionally for this reason or not, I, you know, I did have the sense later from people later in the season that that was a wake-up call for Haskins to recognize, okay, okay, I don't know everything quite yet. Let me let me focus. So when he did get the opportunity to start for real, he was better prepared uh, on all fronts to, to sort of deal with it. And eventually he did, as we said, you know, he looked much better <clears throat> in his last two starts than he right. did in some of those earlier outings. So, you know, it, it's it's – you know, it, it's a tough thing overall. Again, the overall situation was such a mess because of the fact that you had a head coach who was on the verge of getting fired. No, it was a and, mess you know, for him. It was a bad situation yeah. for him. Um, re- yeah. So, Scott Turner said a couple of things yesterday about Dwayne Haskins that, you know, if this is what we do, it's like, you, you know, we could just ignore the whole thing and say, you know, wake me up in September when they've got a real game and then I'll know what they're really doing. But, you know, he talked about, you know, fitting his offense to the talent that they have. And he said specific to Dwayne, you know, as you mentioned, he said, we did, ha- you know, I did have Dwayne evaluated pretty highly coming out of the draft. Um, and he said that, you know, we've got a, a big guy in Dwayne, strong guy, he can stand in the pocket, really push the ball down the field. We're going to want to use a lot of play action pass. And then something he's also done a good job of in the past and in college too is just being able to get the ball out quickly and kind of distribute the football to playmakers and let them make the plays. He also said in his conversation with Ron Rivera before he was given the job, you know, that he, you know, planned for the meeting with Ron Rivera. And he said, I was prepared with a plan of what I'd want our offense to look like and how we would develop Dwayne, our young quarterback, um, and in all the players. I, I, I guess in reading the quotes, I got, I sort of got the sense if there was any debate as to whether or not they, you know, they weren't sure yet on Dwayne, they're going down the path right now of Dwayne Haskins is the starting quarterback next year, right? Um, I don't know. I, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm. I, look, at, 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 if they play a game tomorrow, 
that he's the only guy they have, right? I mean, the only other quarterback on the roster is Alex Smith, and, you know, who the heck knows if he'll ever be cleared to play again. Though obviously he says he's striving to get back on the field. So the question will be, well, when they bring in a backup, are they bringing in sort of a Colt McCoy-type backup who literally is just the backup, or are they bringing in sort of a, I'll just use Marcus Mariota as a name, you know, somebody who has significant starting experience who maybe, you know, you can get on the cheap, but, you know, you could arguably see being somebody who could in like a sort of a way compete kind of. I don't think it's out of the question that the Redskins could view it in that second way. I don't think there, it's a lock. On the flip side, you know, it would be borderline nuts. I mean, this is the whole thing always. This is part of why the whole Dwayne Haskins thing with with Gruden was nuts. It wasn't just that Jay Gruden sort of got hosed with the whole situation, but now you're bringing in another coach who is saddled to this guy. If the Redskins, if, if Rivera decides Haskins isn't for me, well, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a problem that you have this kid who's a first round pick. You know, if you if you trade him, you're not going to get full value for what you got. If you keep him, and you bring in other people to compete, now that's a whole other thing. So again, don't the you odds think are that's something though, Ben? Don't you think that's something that Ron Rivera during you know that time that they initially met with Gibbs and Snyder in early December and the time that he took the job formally? Don't you think he did all that work and 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 made his decision in part because? He is his vision is in line with the owners that Dwayne Haskins is the quarterback of the future and maybe he wouldn't have taken this job. Or I mean he could have taken this job with the understanding from Snyder that he can do whatever he wants with the quarterback or he's not sold completely yet on the quarterback, but part of me thinks that, you know, he did his due diligence on Haskins. He did a lot of you can't do it all until you've worked with this kid every day. I understand he could change his mind. Yeah, I, I guess I just would say that like Again, logically, Dwayne Haskins is the starting quarterback. Logically, Ron Rivera looked at the situation and thought to himself, okay, if I accept this job, you know, at least next season at a minimum, I got this kid and we'll have to work and put, you know, put enough around him to make this work. Not only did they bring in Scott Turner, they brought in Zampezi, a long, uh, you know, longtime assistant coach who's right. known for, for working with young quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield and others. So they're all, you know, obviously already doing the things that you would want. To help a kid like Haskins, so the logic would be that. I would just say, like, you know, it is part of it up to Haskins as well. He has to do more than I think at times some people thought he was doing. And maybe for Ron Rivera, you know, I think right now he's very much. I'm not going to like sort of what you were saying before about how people come in and they want to immediately start saying we're going to be this, we're going to be that. I think he is trying to be like, well, look, I like what we have. I like Dwayne Haskins. We'll see. And maybe, you know, it is possible I'm I'm viewing it as taking it too literally. But I, at the same point, I, I don't think it would stun me if Dwayne Haskins isn't the week one starter. But at the same point, it wouldn't stun me if Rivera brings in uh, somebody who we might be like, huh, really? Okay, you, you bring in that guy. Well, that's interesting. Maybe it's not, it's not, in, it's not in, uh, inconceivable that that guy gets in the lineup of Haskins doesn't do what they what they want so likely it's Haskins they're setting it up to be Haskins again all all kinds of points to be Haskins but I'm not I'm not 100% saying that Ron Rivera is like in and, and look as we always talk about there's only 32 of these jobs and this one forget the quarterback the owner said to the coach we're going to build this around you regardless of who the quarterback is that's a that's a fantastic opportunity so whether it was Dwayne Haskins uh vintage Peyton Manning or uh you know John Beck you're not turning down the, the opportunity to take this job based on that. Your quarterback is a key for, of course, we get this, but you can figure that out later. 
you can't get uh, you can't get every owner in the league to say it's you. You're the guy in charge. We're going to build around you. Is it inconceivable to think that the Bengals would pass on Joe Burrow? <laughs> that seems like. I mean, I know, like leading sort of toward the end of the season and going in towards, um, you know, going into the the, the college playoffs. You know, I, I you know you heard some things about not everybody is convinced that that, that Joe Burrow is you know a high end NFL quarterback and all that. Man, it is really hard to, to comprehend. I mean, not only did he do put up you know record breaking season statistically he's from Ohio like I don't know how the Bengals you know a, a team that could use a, a PR boost and, and all that not to mention a quarterback how they would pass on him of course you know again it goes back to the Chase Young thing if they decide um, you know they do have the first pick in the second round this is a year where there's like four or five quarterbacks who seem to be borderline first round picks if they decide we think we'll get one of those guys in round two we don't think those we think those guys are reasonable but Chase Young is outrageous but I mean, again, I I would be stunned at this point based on you know maybe this is a recency bias, but holy moly, Joe Burrow was you know so good, uh, you know, and again the Ohio connection, I just would be stunned if they didn't uh, pick him. All right, uh, looking forward to your first um, NFL mock. When is that due? Uh, good question. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to the Senior Bowl. I've never been before going to that, so. That'll be a new experience. So I don't know if I'll have one before then. Certainly after, and uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Excited to, uh, to, to to hit the across Alabama off the state list, and uh, you know, talk to people around the league and get a sense what they think of of this class, and then obviously what the Redskins uh, are going to do, and, and you know, if Chase Young is is the, is the lock pick of the decade, like people think he is. Thank you, as always, uh, Ben. Ben Standig, he does a great job. I'm telling you, it's worth um, the subscription uh, to The Athletic just to read Ben. He's clued in uh, everything Redskins. He's always you know, on the either breaking stories or certainly right there on the forefront on, on the verge of doing it. Um, I appreciate it, as always. I'll talk to you soon. See ya. Yep. Ben Standing, everybody, The Athletic. All right, on tomorrow's show, uh, we will spend time. Tommy will be on the show tomorrow. We'll talk uh, and preview both championship games. And if you want to wager on those games and you don't have a place to do so, mybookie.ag. You got the Super Bowl approaching, the two championship games, lots of college hoops, NBA. If you've been looking for a place to play and you can't find a place to play, mybookie.ag is totally reliable. Take my word for it. Mybookie.ag has fast payouts. the best promotions. They've got a very helpful 24 hours a day, seven days a week customer service team, great odds, many different ways to wager. MyBookie.ag. They'll match your deposit halfway right now as well if you use my promo code KevinDC. So if you want to open up an account, say with $1,000, they'll give you an extra $500 to play with. They'll do that all the way up to $2,000 where they'll give you uh, an extra thousand of free money to play with. All you got to do is use my promo code KevinDC to activate the offer. Once again, mybookie.ag, promo code KevinDC. All right, we're done for the day. Back tomorrow with Tommy. Uh, Enjoy the day. Have a great one, everybody.